Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Joining me as usual is my co-host and Oscars party host, Sean Newkirk. Sean, <laughs> how was your Oscars party? Uh, it was good, other than Green Book winning, which I think Twitter had a total meltdown that Green Book won. Um, I, I know that people that I follow and some of the other, I wouldn't call myself a movie buff, but other people who enjoy movies a lot as much as I do were were a little shocked and uh, about to tear down some galleys. And I do want to say... I know I'm not going to get deep in this. I do want to say that having a host made ze- having no host made zero difference. It, it was almost, I don't know if it was more enjoyable, but I did not even notice there was even no host really. Um, so I I'm on board with that. We don't even need a host of this podcast either. I think. As I say, I think speaking as someone who's a co-host of this of this podcast, I would like to stand up for hosts and say that, yes, they are very important. Um, yeah. So it's the outset of spring training, and uh, we wanted to come on and talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, the, the games are underway, and we have already players getting hurt, unfortunately. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, at the end, but first we wanted to bring on a special guest. Uh, we have with us today from 2080 Baseball, Adam McInturf. Uh He's an evaluator over there, has some really good write-ups, and if you're someone that's interested in prospects, uh, you should definitely bookmark 2080 Baseball because they've got some great scouting reports deep into farm systems, uh, as well as draft stuff as well. So uh, definitely check them out. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, tell us, first of all, a little bit about your background and what 2080 Baseball does. Yeah, I think that's something that we try and do is we try and have, as much as we can anyway, kind of one foot in and one foot out of the industry um, and try and fill that niche. We have people out in the field. I think that's another separator for us as we really try and stress. I think... uh, we have a lot of videos in our video library, well over a thousand just from this year alone on the pro side. And I think that's a testament to the amount of hard work that we've put out trying to get guys in the field and um, see players and have our evaluators see them. Um, basically, though, I mean, we're, we're a scouting site and we're trying to stay true to that. Right now we're rolling out our uh, organizational top prospect list and org reviews as well as a lot of draft stuff spearheaded by Nick Valeris and Burt Granger on the amateur side and they do some great stuff over there um so our org reviews are getting going on the pro side and I'm looking forward to talking about the Royals one here with you guys yeah that's great I do I really do appreciate those videos because you know as Royals fans I think we're always kind of looking towards the future you know because we depend on you know players coming up to the minors so much so it's always nice to get a look at some of these guys get a look at their swing how do they handle themselves on the field get a look at some of these guys on the mound and you guys do provide a lot of really great videos as well so i do appreciate that so let's talk a little bit about the royals system you talked about you know you guys are coming out with your organizational uh kind of assessments 
Uh, and we've seen a lot of organizational rankings uh, from kind of the, the leaders in the industry. Baseball America has the Royals still kind of near the bottom, although a little bit improved from last year at 27th. Keith Law has them at 21st. Uh, I was kind of surprised Baseball Perspective was pretty aggressive on the Royals, ranking them 16th. Um, so it seems like the Royals are, are making progress, at least from where they were last year. And honestly, the only way they can go is up. Um, so what's kind of your assessment of the of the system right now? Where do you uh, kind of see the system uh, relative to others right now? I don't know if I have an exact numbers. We haven't gotten through all 30. We're going to probably release uh, an organizational rankings, 1 through 30. We'll, we'll assign teams a hard grade. But I probably see them somewhere between that 16 and 21 range. Um, like you said, the general state of the system, I think, is one that's trending up. Uh, this was, uh, if you look at our top list and a lot of the consensus top prospects in the system, um, a lot of guys have been added in the last two years. I don't, I don't know as much as any team, or but arguably about as much as anybody else in the league. Uh, there's been a ton of guys added both through last year's draft. Um, and the draft before that, and then with a couple trades this year uh, to pad the system, there's a lot of new players, and I think that is having the system trend upward. And along with that, uh, when you factor in, I think, the high picks they're going to have this year and maybe for the next few years, that adds some opportunity for some premium prospects to continue to push the system forward. Yeah, it's interesting. They, they Like you said, they've added a lot of players recently, recently so a lot of their top prospects – are still quite a ways from the uh, the major leagues, and a lot of them played last year in Low A ball in yeah, Lexington, that's a good point. and then uh, this yeah. year they should be uh, at High A Wilmington. So um, you know, it's, I think a lot of times the Royals have talked about having guys come up in waves, like the 2000 you know 14 15 Royals. They kind of came up come up together in the minors. I mean, do you see a lot of teams doing that? I mean, is, is that something that is there some kind of benefit you think in developing guys together where they are coming up through the system as teammates? Yeah, I, I see the benefit of that. I think you guys would know uh, way better than me in terms of the Royals, whether it's a concentrated effort. M- maybe it is. Just like like you said, there's kind of a track record with this organization of keeping guys together. Um, whether that's kind of by design or whether that kind of happened or some combination of the two, uh, you touched on that Lexington team last year going to Wilmington, and that's really the special group. Um, you know, last year's team with MJ Melendez, Khalil, uh, Cecilia Matias, Prado, and then they got the benefit of having uh, Coar and Lynch, and they had quite a few other guys in that lineup as well. Uh, that kind of seems to be the core group, and they're uh, going to be fun for me to catch next year and keep watching those guys in the Carolina League in Wellington. You mentioned Melendez uh, as a guy, and I think he kind of stands out to me as well. And you have him ranked number one in your in your uh, ranking of top Royals prospects. Um, and what's interesting to me is that there's been a lot of top you know Royals prospects rankings. And I don't think I've seen like a consensus on who their best prospect is. I've seen Daniel yeah. Lynch listed. I've seen Suley Matias. I've seen Khalil Lee. I've seen Brady Singer. Um, tell us what you like about Melendez so much to have him ranked uh, number one. And is, he, is there do, do you see a lot of separation between him and, and necessarily those other guys that I mentioned? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. That unlike some other systems, and, and as you can see between publications, there's not one consensus guy at the top of this list. I think that's a good thing. I mean, maybe that means, and this is something that we mentioned in the maybe the system, quote, weaknesses right now, because there's so many of their top guys far away, there's not really that one top 50 bonafide, you know, blue chip prospect that's going to be at the top of top prospect list this winter. But there are a lot of guys, like you said, that are kind of in that mix to maybe move into that tier 
moving forward, and that's why there's such a kind of a medley of different guys at number one. Our number one, like you said, MJ Melendez, uh, he's there for us because of what we see as just all-star upside uh, and and behind the plate as well. I mean, I think it's kind of a mix of, I think and you guys can probably attest to this in the reports that have come out about this kid. It's makeup, it's presence, it's a valuable uh, defensive profile with the ability to hit for power. I think something that we see and we're projecting maybe more aggressively on than others is his ability to cut down on strikeouts and improve his approach at the plate and hit for more average. Uh, I think that's probably the question some people have as impressive as this season was in Lexington last year. So I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on that. But if that kind of made sense, the, the gist that we had there is we just saw a special player given the offensive upside of catcher, but also the makeup, I think, is what pushed us over the edge. His leadership, um, feel for the game, and presence, I think he kind of had some of those intangible qualities that you see with prospects that go on to kind of blow up. And we're trying to kind of, you know, buy in early, so to speak, uh, and push him up the list for that reason. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think that's something the Royals actually kind of seek out with a lot of these prospects. Is they, I think they more than a lot of other organizations uh, look for the the guy with the intangibles. You know, as much as you can kind of predict that, which is always hard to peg. But he is a, he is a son of a college coach. I think the Royals kind of knew he yeah. had those bloodlines and and was a gritty gamer who loved just kind of being, uh, you know, working in the cages and such. Uh, I, what impresses me though, you know, I kind of knew that he had that in the system. I thought he would be a really good defender. I'm kind of surprised about the power at such a young age. I mean, he had 19 home runs in, you know, the South mm-hmm. Atlantic League is not exactly a, a great hitter's environment. Uh, I, I, so I, you know, to do that at such a young age, I think that was most impressive to me. I don't know, like, as far as when you talk about young players kind of playing up a level, like how, how big mm-hmm. of a factor is that um, when, when you're evaluating you know, a, a kid's upside? Yeah, I think age, just the general concept of age, relative the level is really important because there needs to be some way to account for, you know, younger players against better competition struggling or holding their own and that being impressive, like maybe uh, Khalil Lee and what he did at some uh, in, in Double A last year versus like an older player tearing up low minors competition. So that's that's definitely important. Um, and uh, yeah, in terms of Melendez's power, I was just going to say that's. That's, that's what impressed me the most and kind of surprised me the most as well. Knowing the rap on him as an amateur, uh, seeing him this year, I got to see him a couple of times, plenty over video, but then I saw, I actually saw Lexington three series live, I think, and his raw power is something that I wasn't expecting at all. I, I think I was kind of expecting to see the show from Matias and from Prado, and then I showed up, uh, and frankly, you know, I mean, Julia's special raw, but Melendez uh, was, you know, that power that he showed for real, and it, I think, was the unexpected development for a lot of scouts, uh, him progressing from high school to his first full pro season last year. And, and Sean, I think it was you that tweeted from Royals Fan Fest a picture of Melendez at Fan Fest, and he looked jacked. I mean, yeah. <laughs> kids have been hitting yeah. the gym. Because, <laughs> like, he wasn't... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was, like, he was never, like, tiny, like, you, you coming out of the draft... Um, but like, you know, he wasn't this, I mean, it was, it was awesome to see Sula Matias when he was signed at 16 and then like in the summer or something, someone tweeted out a photo of him and he was just huge. But then it was like, see yeah. Melendez, like could barely even like turn around. He was so like top built. It was just impressive. Uh, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's just amazing how much he's grown. So yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's such good things. 
so the Royals, you know, they have all these players at, at Lexington, um, and then, but they're mostly hitters. I mean, we talk about Melendez, Matias, uh, Prado. Uh, you know, it's a very hitter-heavy, uh, you know, prospect or farm system, at least before the draft. And then at the 2018 draft, they go and they take a bunch of college arms, guys like Brady Singer out of Florida, Jackson Coar out of Florida, uh, Daniel Lynch out of Virginia. Uh, what did you think of that strategy going so heavy with college arms and what's kind of your general impression of some of the guys they took? I think with the amount of arms they stocked up on, um, it I, I like the amount of arms they got. Uh, just kind of from a, you know, quantity standpoint. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I can speak to, like, the rationale behind why, whether it was a concentrated effort, if they went into the draft and were like, hey, we feel like our system is light on arms and we're really going to try and infuse arms into the system, or whether where they picked, they just kept coming up on a lot of guys. It uh, added a lot of high upside arms in the system for me. I, I'm not sure. There's there's a lot of talk kind of between which one of these three, that, that big three you mentioned, Senior Coar and Lynch, is the number one guy. And you've seen a lot of varying reports from different publications on that. Uh, Lynch had an excellent pro debut, and I think that's what a lot of people are writing on. And we saw Senior in instruction. He was excellent there, too. So... Um, you know, there's a lot to be excited about, and it looks like they're going to join, or at least I think they're going to join that group we were mentioning uh, in in Wilmington th- this year. Yeah, I, I think they could be really fast risers too. It'll be interesting to see if like there's a com- little competitive spirit between the three of them because they're all kind of high draft picks. That and then Lynch kind of you know like he like you said he busted out of the gate with a really impressive debut, and 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 Singer I think is going to be a guy that that maybe has the higher uh, expectation on. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll be really interested to see how aggressive the Royals are in promoting those guys. Uh, and, yeah, Wilmington, we could see all three of them at Wilmington this year, uh, which would be really interesting, coupled with those hitters coming up uh, with the Blue Rocks this year. Um, the one guy I get asked about the most in the Royal system probably is Nicky Lopez, uh, just because he seems like a guy, yeah. he's going to be a fan favorite because he's, you know, another one of those, you know, gritty sure. infielders who, uh, you, know, you know, loves the game. But he also has a, a game that seems really well suited for Kauffman Stadium in that he makes a lot of contact, and uh, you know he has got that good <clears> speed. Uh, you know the question with him is what's his ceiling? Um, so, what's what's kind of your assessment of Lopez, and and what can we kind of expect uh, from him as a as a prospect going forward? Yeah, I think you you raised a really good point about how his offensive profile specifically is a good fit in Kauffman, and it probably is. Um, that being one that's never going to have tons of over the fence power but in an environment where he can put the ball in play and spray line drives to all fields to the gaps and run, that's probably going to benefit him. Um, he's a guy that since the time he got drafted, I saw him in college, I saw him play in Burlington, the athlete right after signing, and while he did stand out, and he was kind of a gut field guy for a lot of scouts early on before he kind of blew up, I think for a long time everyone kind of saw him as a good utility player, like a Rule 45 type player. And the way that he's hit and the offensive developments he's made last year for me uh, when I saw him, I think he's kind of bumped into an area where, you know, he might hit enough to be an everyday guy. It's, it's going to be a glove-led profile. It's going to be a guy that to be an everyday player is going to have to bring value at shortstop. But uh, I'm sure as you guys have seen and talked about, I'm you know, uh, he really kind of turned it on to another level last year offensively. I think he finished the year in AAA, and he's knocking on the door of the big leagues now. So I'm not sure how he fits in long term um, with Mondesi and others, but uh, I see a guy with at least some chance to be an everyday player. And, and short of that, I think he's no worse than a 
strong utility type that can move around the infield and bring value there. Yeah, I don't know about you, Sean, too, but I, I get the impression that uh, that he is going to spend. He's probably going to start the year in the minors, but could spend you know almost all season there. And uh, yeah, I don't. I question too what what the long term plan is with him. I don't know what, what what do you see with the future with Nicky Lopez, though, Sean. Yeah, I mean the Merrifield extension kind of complicates things because um, you know had they traded him, which I think a lot, oh, not everybody, but many folks, myself included, and I think you are as well, Max, uh, might be on board with you know trading Merrifield, which even if Lopez isn't you know Correa or Lindor or you know some long-term franchise cornerstone um, that's going to be putting up four or five win seasons, it still would have opened the door for him to get some sort of shot to prove that he is or isn't, um, you know, what we think he might be. So I, I just don't know about, like, how do you play him? You're not going to play him at shortstop. You're not going to, I mean, so you would think second base. So then maybe Merrifield moves to left field, but you've got Gordon. So then maybe Merrifield moves to third, but then you've got Dozier and, they, you know, they still kind of like Cuthbert. So I don't know. I He deserves a shot. The question is, you know, you know, who is he going to play instead of? And there's already very established guys ahead of him at this point that, you know, the Royals are not obviously willing to move. So I don't know. I guess the one thing I was, I was thinking is that they are talking about having Chris Owings as a utility player all over the field. And maybe that's kind of going to, you know, lay the template for Lopez. Not that he can play all those positions, but if he can play second, then Whit Merrifield can play left field and right field. And somehow you find a way to get Lopez in the lineup four or five times a week. Yeah, we'll see. You know, I think it's not a bad thing to have that kind of depth. And if you have a, a guy that's good enough to be a regular playing a backup role, that's not, you know, especially in his rookie season, um, that's probably not a bad thing. So we'll see. We'll see how they ease him in. But uh, certainly a guy that a lot of Royals fans, I think, want to see at the big league level pretty quickly. And, and who knows? We may get our chance. Uh, especially if there's an injury or, or, or so. Um, so, Adam, who's who's maybe a guy that's, you know, we know some of the top guys in the system. Is there a guy that's maybe under the radar who isn't getting a lot of play right now, but, you know, we've seen a couple guys already in the system kind of go up the go up prospect rankings pretty quickly. I mean, Suli Matias, I don't think was uh, considered that great of a prospect before last year, and he really came on the scene with with 31 home runs for Lexington. Is there a guy like that right now you think, man, if he really puts it together, we could see him on top 100 lists, even though he's not on the radar right now? Yeah, I, I don't I was Someone asked me this on a different podcast about the Royals system the other day, and I said Jeffrey Del Rosario, and mm-hmm. fairly they said, I don't know if he's enough of a uh, enough of a sleeper. But if, if, he, if he counts as enough of a sleeper, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll probably one, choose yeah. him. It, it, it was going to be him or Carlos Hernandez, but yeah. I'll, I'll go with the my last look at Del Rosario down in, in the playoffs last year. He really found a groove in the second half. I think he started a little bit with Lexington. He's really young, though, and then he kind of found a groove down the stretch and was really, really good for the Legends. Um, I saw him in the playoffs. Uh, they won the championship and uh, in, in that league, and I saw him in the playoffs, and he was just really excellent, like 96, 97 with life, sharp, breaking ball. Um, age is on his side. He's not the biggest guy, but there are examples of shorter righties with this type of power stuff really across the big leagues now. Uh, there, there, there's a lot to like about this kid. I'm really looking forward to seeing him progress, and uh, he'd probably be my pick. Yeah, that would be great if the Royals could develop a little bit more on the pitching side because they've, they've really struggled. I mean, there's guys like Danny Duffy and, and, and you know, the, the late Jordana Ventura that they've been able to develop, but the last decade it's, it seems like they've really struggled 
developing any kind of pitching. And, and Del Rosario kind of fell into their lap, you know, by by circumstance with the Atlanta Braves yeah. getting, getting nailed uh, yeah. and penalized. So uh, that'd be great if they could uh, get him. And I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think he's enough of a sleeper, uh, and I could see him rising up uh, uh, rankings as well next year. Um, I think what we're really counting on building up the farm system next year is, is the draft um, because we, you know, we were terrible last year and, but we're rewarded with the number two pick in this year's draft. Uh, I know it's really early. Um, and so and there's going to be lots of jostling on dra- draft boards, but who are some names Royals fans should know at the top of the draft this year? I think that they're going to have their pick uh, of some really premium guys. I was hoping you guys were going to throw some names out, some, you know, some of the top names that have been thrown around. Uh, Burke Granger and, Nick Valeris do some awesome uh, amateur draft stuff for us at 2080 Baseball. That's actually, we started more as an amateur draft site, and we've added the pro stuff later. So those guys are kind of the 2080 authorities draft-wise. But I know, you know, some of the top names you hear, drafting where they are, you're going to have the pick of the litter, basically. So there's Adley Rushman at Oregon State. Bobby Wood Jr. is one of the high school names you're throwing around a lot. Andrew Vaughn, a college first baseman, but maybe enough of a dynamic offensive producer that it doesn't matter that he's uh, lower down the defensive spectrum. Um, and those are kind of the biggest three names that you're hearing thrown around right now. And picking at number two, I think they're going to, you know, be able to really have, like I said, kind of the, the pick the litter. So um, those are some of the biggest names to be following, I would say. Sean, you were tweeting the other day, you don't think the Royals would, would draft Vaughn in a million years. you want to elaborate on that yeah i mean first off let me say that i could give a crap that he's right-handed and he's a righty righty one baseman because you know what like if a guy can hit like you'll find somewhere like pete alonzo like you know people might think that pete alonzo they're like oh he's a first baseman oh he's a college first baseman at that um but i mean if he's gonna hit 30 home runs and put up a 350 obp i mean i think you can live with maybe you know him batting from you know the right side and not being a great first baseman. So I like Vaughn uh, hitting-wise, at least. And I think he's probably the safest bet to hit, but just not the Royals kind of type where you know they kind of want positional flexibility. I can't think of the – who is – I can't think of the last college hitter they took other than Cologne. I mean, early at least, right? Cologne might be it. Am I wrong there, Max? No, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. That's... And, and Cologne was a shortstop. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't, you know, a right yeah. first baseman. So I just – and then, you know, they want athleticism. They're kind of looking for – Guys who can play, you know, up the middle, I think, is where they start, move from there. Which, I mean, maybe most draft boards do that, but specifically, I think the Royals do. So, as much as I like Vaughn, you know, and I would, I would consider him in the top five picks easily. Um, not over someone like Rushman, but you know, up there at two or three, yeah. I think White Sox are in on him at least. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I like him, but he's just not the Royals type, for better or worse. If you're looking at the prep side, if you're looking at the prep side, which I'm guessing you guys are referring to, like, you know, last year's draft to me was kind of an, an, an anomaly because they're generally so high school heavy. Mm-hmm. So if we're, if, if you guys feel that they're going to go back to that, uh, names like CJ Abrams or Riley Green, those are maybe probably, I'd, I'd say both of those guys would be taking deals at number two and they'd be trying to move the money elsewhere after that to get another premium pick. But those are kind of two other, uh, two of the other top high school names you hear thrown around. And if you're thinking they're going to go high school, that might be, you know, some guys to keep an eye on from the radar. Well, I did want to kind of end by just talking about maybe some prospects that we might actually end up seeing in Kansas City this year. We talked a little bit about Nicky Lopez, who I think at the very least we'll see get a cup of coffee. Um, I think Richard Lovelady is another guy that 
a lot of Royals fans mm-hmm. want to see. Um, tell us a little bit what we can expect from Love Lady, and if there are any other prospects you think could could end up making their major league debut this year. Yeah, Love Lady's kind of been on our radar for a little bit now. He uh, showed impressive arm strength, and I feel like last year really everything started coming together. He's been really dominant up the ladder. I think he's going to be a guy that's going to be able to step in and be a you know, fairly high-leverage left-handed reliever for them right away. I mean, we, we have him graded out as the seventh, eighth inning type at his ceiling, and I think he'll be able to contribute fairly close to that um, next year. I, I He's probably him and uh, him and Nicky Lopez probably are the two that are the most impactful close to contributing, but some other guys that come to mind, um, maybe Stalmont be a guy that that uh that w- w- was he up last year no no but we've been fans of him for up last yeah, year yeah yeah no i'm 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 a fan of his too um maybe late in the season you could maybe you'd see khalil lee maybe you could see like uh kelvin gutierrez too um i think you'd probably see arnaldo hernandez as well kind of that that's a that's a farther down guy and something that i'm curious to watch with the royals too just to bring it up i'm sure you guys have talked about this previously uh i think they're going to try and carry two rule five guys this year right yeah yeah they've got sam mcwilliams or, or, and chris or, or ellis at least right now yeah yeah so we'll see, so the we'll see how that shakes out as well are you on um adam are you on the the gabe cancel my boy gabe cancel train at all i know that you guys you at least had him in the report a bit um uh, but i didn't know and yeah. i guess put a 45 on him which is good for a guy that's kind of maybe unheralded i mean a 45 outcome would be great yeah, no, I think the Ford out, out, outcome will be great. I think he's going to make the big leagues in some capacity, and his ceiling is, I think, an offensive-minded reserve player. So that's kind of why we, why we put the forty-five. I think that's his best-case ceiling. If he's going to, if he's going to run into an issue, it's that I think uh, the bats really just going to have to carry because I don't think of him really as a guy that's going to bring you much value, like shortstop-wise. He'll probably have to move between second and third. I saw him more at second last year in Wilmington. Um, but I, I, I think he can hit a little bit. I think he has a chance to hit. Wilmington's numbers, it's important to remember how much they depress offensive numbers, too. So I'm curious to kind of see what, 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 what the future holds for him. I'm glad you brought him up. He's an interesting guy. Are you on the train? Is, is that why you brought him up? Um, I don't know if I'm the conductor, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in the first you're, class you're, you're passenger. You're in first yeah. class. Okay. Yeah. He's okay. like one of my guys. Love Lady's one of my guys. Um, Chase Velo. uh Rest in peace from a prospect status standpoint, for the most part, was, was one of my guys. So, um, yeah, I, I cancels a cancels a bit of a sabermetric, maybe not darling, but he's definitely a guy that looks a, looks really really good when you just look at his numbers and his age and um, the positional value that he could provide at you know second base. And then you've got the report as well that you know good contact hitter, a little bit of you know innate power. But we'll just see about yeah, yeah. how he is up the middle if he sticks. Yeah, up. no. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just a matter of that. It's it's worth mentioning that you know I'll I'll pick a guy that needs to get better in the field than a, over you know than a guy that can't hit. Like, I, there's a lot of examples of guys improving defensively for one and two. We're in an era, shifting wise and otherwise, where there's examples all over the league of guys getting better defensively or just being shielded a little bit defensively. So, I think it'd be great if he wound up an everyday player. But I I, I see Cancel ceiling maybe a little short of that, but still is a guy that's a chance to contribute. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, and then maybe gets there 2020 or 2021 in the best case, but I think you guys are probably a better feel for that type of timeline and depth, uh, depth chart stuff than I would. 
Yeah, and you can live with. I mean, if if you're taking like with Franklin Barreto with like the Rays, like the Rays, if we're talking about new defense, at least. I mean, the Rays in Oakland, you know, uh, also Barreto are one of those orgs that like, yeah. I mean, I can live with just because the positional value at shortstop is just so high. Like they can live with not great defense at shortstop if the guy hits because it's just so. You already have such a high bar playing 162 games at shortstop to begin with that even if you are a below average shortstop, as long as you're not, you know, sticking Adam Eaton out there or something, you know, you're good to go. Adam Eaton, Adam Dunn, sorry. Um, you know, you're good to go at shortstop if you can hit. So I think I think there's a little bit of that going on too with, you know, if Cancel actually was a 2B, you can kind of live a bit with that. We'll definitely link to 2080 Baseball, and you should definitely check out their top 15 Royals prospects get you know read read their assessment of, of where the system stands and definitely check out their videos. Adam, thanks so much for joining us and we you know we'd love to have you back uh, again sometime maybe this summer to talk about what you've seen out of the out of the Royals farm system. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, like, like you said, you can find us at 2080baseball.com. That's 2080ball on Twitter 2080ball. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for having me, guys. Yep, thanks totally. we're back and uh so are the royals in fact they've started playing actual baseball games uh they're fake games but they they're still real to me damn it and um i think so far you know it's only been a handful of games sean but i think the star so far in the first few games is bubba starling he's five for six in his first two games with two home runs and a double should i get stock in bubba starling at this point I mean, this is it, right? This is this is the year he finally figures it out. We have never been burned by that before. <laughs> no, it's spring training. <laughs> I don't I don't know how else to say it other than that. You know, you always wanted it to be the case, and there was that time when Starling, what was it like, the beginning of last year? I think a 2018 where he did really good in Omaha, and everybody goes, "Yep, this is it." And you know, of course, he got injured, but I don't know. No, I. I love this story, and I don't know if there's anybody that I want to succeed more in the Royals minor leagues than than Starlin, just from everything he's been through and all the all the kind of bad talk that he's gotten and all the you know bust you know chance he's probably gotten. But no, I I I really want him to succeed totally. And it's it's interesting. Like I know the window is kind of closing on him, but they did bring him back and on a minor league deal. And there is, I mean, it's not like the outfield is solidified with like three studs in the outfield right now. I mean, there's a, a definite opening. I mean, he could probably, you know, right field is pretty unsettled. And then Billy Hamilton's probably not going to be on the roster all year. I mean, he's probably going to get traded at some point. Yeah. Or you could platoon him, you know, you could ease Starling into that role. Uh, so I kind of feel like there's an opening there if he does actually show something. But he's got to show something first. And, I mean, yeah, it seems like yeah. we've had, oh, he had a great week followed by like, you know, four weeks of him not being good and then getting hurt. Uh, so I guess I'll believe it when I see it. And, and, yeah. and, you know, how many articles has like, you know, God bless Jeffrey Flanagan, but I feel like he writes that, <laughs> you know, Bubba Starling's turning the corner article every year. And, um, yeah, I guess I, I'm, it's a show me state and you gotta, you gotta show me something, kid. Yeah. Uh, so, cause like 2015, he had a, in spring training. So spring training, he had, 646 OPS, not great, but whatever. I mean, um, 2017, 691 OPS, 2018, 930 OPS. So, I mean, he last year he was awesome in spring training. Um, and then, you know, 
turns out he who he was who we thought he was. So I don't know. I don't think we're quite ready. To, we've been burned too many times. But as Michael Scott says, I'm ready to get hurt again. And it's not like he even has to be that great offensively for him to be pretty valuable. Like he's got great speed and defense, like Billy Hamilton, and he's got more a lot more power than Hamilton. So I feel like if he could just make contact a little bit and stay healthy, yeah, he, he could he could be in the mix. But uh, yeah, we'll have to see how he does through throughout camp. Uh, you know, we had an article a couple weeks ago about what we wanted to see out of spring training. And it seemed like what most of the writers and even a lot of the readers came down to is, hey, we just want these guys to stay healthy throughout the spring, throughout the six weeks of camp. And yeah. yet uh, at the outset of camp, we were already getting uh, maybe the first taste of some injuries. Uh, let's start with the, I guess, the, the, the more serious, I guess, more important player, but less serious injury is Danny Duffy is dealing with some minor tightness in his shoulder. Uh, and this comes, you know, the same week that Rustin Dodd had a really good article about Duffy kind of getting in shape this year and wanting to have his arm, you know, game ready. Uh, you know, we, we know he had some, you know, he got off to a poor start last year and there were some velocity concerns. Like how, how much in panic mode should Royals fans be right now that he's experiencing tightness already? I mean, on the one hand, you're thinking like, on the one hand, it was wrong to think that he was going to, pitch 200 innings to begin with this year you know so if you went into the season thinking like okay this is the year he's going to throw 180 200 innings then you probably had the wrong expectation um so i mean on the one hand the injury isn't that awful because you expect him to probably miss time anyways but yeah i mean given how he performed last year um and how he's just getting older and his velocity's been down it's kind of like oh man um, you know, for not for so long, but we got that peak Duffy, which I consider to be the 16-17 season. Um, we got that kind of peak Duffy that, you know, looked so, so good, struck out however many dang people it was against the Rays. Um, and so you're like, all right, this is, you know, great to see. But then it's like, man, he's, you know, has yet to throw 180. Now he threw 179 innings back in 2016. But, you know, it's been 136, 146, 155 as I look at it. Um so, I mean, he's never quite been a full season starter. And so I think we're going to have to just live with that, especially with, you know, the time left on the deal. With the way baseball's trending with just like de-emphasizing starting pitchers going very deep in games. Yeah. I mean, should we kind of rethink his role a little bit? Maybe not as a reliever, but as a guy that only goes like four or five innings and, and yeah. maybe and maybe they do a four-man rotation and, and he pitches every, you know, every fourth, every fifth day. But, um, you know, should we – should we maybe just not think of him like as a conventional starting pitcher anymore? Yeah, but he's the problem is uh, maybe not the problem, but he's getting paid yeah. like a conventional starting pitcher, you know. So I mean, if it was a guy that's still under six years of team control, three at the minimum, three in arb, you're like, okay, you know, you can put up with that. But you know, he's going to be making fifteen million this year, and then fifteen, fifteen, or fifteen point two, fifteen point two, fifteen and a half. So um, you know, it's not like he's coming in cheap, and you know, you expect at least. Or the Royals probably expected when they signed the deal to get, you know, a certain amount of innings and 130 innings probably wasn't what they were expecting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I agree in that, in the sense that, yeah, the game is changing and, um, you know, pitchers aren't what pitchers were at one point. So, I mean, it's, it's totally, it, it at least helps out a bit that, you know, even if you do only get them for call it five innings a game, I mean, it's still, that's still not too far from, you know, 1970s when guys would go out or even in or whatever the 20s as well when guys would go out and throw 400 innings in a season i mean it just it's just not that anymore 
we'll keep a close eye on Duff. He isn't, you know, we're not going to panic yet. He's just having a little tightness, and he said he's, you know, he said he may have gassed it a little too much in his first outing. So, you know, he's got plenty of time to kind of work out the kinks, and hopefully, he gets his his arm and 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 uh, ready for the season when it begins on March 28th. The one guy that looks less doubtful to be ready in time is Trevor Oaks. Uh, Oaks has a hip injury and he may need labrum surgery, which would probably cost him about half the season. Now, you know, Trevor Oaks isn't a guy that I think Royals fans have seen too much of. Uh, he's the guy we got from the Dodgers system in the Scott Alexander trade. Um, I think Oaks was just more interesting than he was realistic um, as part of the the plans. I mean, the Royals are kind of fighting. I mean, the, the Royals are have room in their rotation, kind of some padding. Um, for guys to try out. So it's not as if, like, you know, Oaks was the number five guy. Now it's like, oh, shoot, who's going to be the number as much in that sense? But um, he was one of the more interesting kind of potential upside guys, only 26, crazy ground ball rates. Um, you know, could probably strike out seven, eight guys a game, uh, an inning, uh, seven, eight guys uh, per nine, um, and maybe walk a little bit more like twos or threes. So, yeah, I mean, there was, there was some good upside um, but you know, we'll see, especially with, um, with, you know, injuries now and then the labrum, I mean, we'll see how guys come back from that, but yeah, he was, I think he was a little more interesting than he was like, oh man, what a hit, you know? Yeah. And I think the Royals, I think to date Moore's credit, I think he did a pretty decent job building up some starting pitching depth so that they could withstand an injury like this. Jesse Hahn is also probably not going to be a, uh, ready to start the year. So they're going to have other options. Um, we, we could talk a little about, the starting pitching depth right now. Um, you know, there's there's going to be some battles. We know the front of the rotation is going to be Danny Duffy if he's healthy, Jake Junis, yeah. Brad Kelly, probably in Kennedy, although they've talked about possibly moving him to the bullpen. They're not going to need a fifth starter for the first week of the season, but I would expect them to need one the second week. Um, who's Who do you think had, kind of has the inside track, and who would you like to see? I mean – you think it's going to be Jorge Lopez, right? That was who I would think, just because, like, they're going to live a lot on that near-perfect game. Was it a perfect game or no-hitter? Well, it was neither, perfect. but... It was, it was a perfect through eight innings. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you, you would think it was, you know, you think they're going to live on that. Um, and, like, you know, Chris Ellis, that can tuck away in the bullpen. Um, Scoglin suspended. Phil Meyer, they've already used him in the bullpen, so he could fit there. So it was kind of like, you know, Duffy, Junis, uh, Keller, Kennedy, Lopez. I was thinking, like, okay, this is who they go with. Um, I like Scott Barlow. I've always kind of liked him. Um, projected, I think, actually, for uh, uh, not the most, but the second most. No, sorry, the most strikeouts per nine of any Royals starting pitcher, according to uh, Fangraphs. And then he's up there as well for the relievers. Um, as far as strikeouts per nine, so I like I like Barlow, um, but I think I think it's really going to just be exactly that. It's going to be um, Junis, Duffy, Keller, Kennedy, and then Lopez, assuming none of them get injured. Dirt uh, Duffy, you know, starts opening day. So I think uh, I think Filmar has the inside track just because he kind of held his own. He wasn't great as a starter last year. He had a four point two six ERA, pretty low, or at least average strikeout rate with a high walk rate, but. I mean, he kind of showed something on the mound. He held his own. He was kind of gritty out there. Doesn't have super great stuff, but, um, you know, he gets some ground balls. And I, I think there's, a, I, I guess, more of a track record, at least last year, with him than with Jorge Lopez, who I, I think what works against Lopez is that people seem to think he's going to be a 
he could be a really good reliever. And so I think, um, you know, you, you know, you almost think that the, the, the more optimal outcome would be Phil Meyer as a starter and Lopez as a reliever, which could work against Lopez a little bit. I still like Lopez as a starter mm-hmm. a lot. I think he has more upside, a lot more upside than Phil Meyer. Um, maybe not a lot more upside, but you know, I think he could be a number solid number three pitcher. No, I, I think so. I think he can he can miss bats, Beth Elmire. Um, but but I think I, I I if I had to put money on it, I think I'd put Elmire as a slight favorite. I, I share your optimism on Barlow. I like him a lot. Uh, I believe there were some pretty good re- reviews about him in Winter Ball this year, and of course he went uh, to Japan and and played with the Major League Baseball All Stars, which. Um, you know, the stretching uh, the term all-star a little yeah. bit. But, uh, yeah, he could be kind of interesting. I don't expect him to begin the year, but he could be an interesting option maybe later in the year. Um, do you, Is Ben Lively a factor in this at all? Yeah, I don't know. I think I think, I think they like him more out of the bullpen. Yeah. Um, and he's just been – it's tough. Like some of these guys, it's tough to be like, oh, yeah, he, he should get a shot because, like, they've just been there so long and been passed from org to org. That's – I don't know. Uh, but I, I think that Lively is going to – if anything, uh, it seems like with these kind of um, – like, I'm blanking on the word. But some of these guys, they're going to be like, the Royals will try in the bowl, see how they do, and then move in the rotation. The the Birch Smiths, the Phil Myers, the Kellers um, – Jorge Lopez, just guys that they'll say, okay, kind of let's break you in the bullpen a bit and then see, you know, when a spot comes open in the rotation because inevitably it will, then we'll move you um, yeah. if we like we see. Yeah, it seems like Lively is more of a depth depth pickup uh, when they yeah. got him last September off waivers. Um, I kind of feel like Glenn Sparkman also is in that conversation yeah. of like, in you know, in case of emergency, break glass and he can come up for a start from Omaha. Um, Homer Bailey, is he – is Homer Bailey in the organization on April 1st? Because he's got an opt-out March 25th. Part of me says yes because, like, what's his best-case scenario that he does well and then someone gives a big deal? I mean, uh, that's part of me is like, okay – so if that's what he's banking on, then like how much is he really gonna get? Because he's he's be at the point of anything over the minor league or anything over the minimum, right? Would be owed off of his contract from the the new team. Am I right on that? Yeah. So he's, same, yeah. So basically, same, he's making the league minimum. Yeah. Same thing with like Tulowitzki. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. So it's like okay, like they really only need to pay him the minimum. So like maybe he goes somewhere like a team gets hurt, uh, or like you know one of their they're like guaranteed number five starter gets hurt. And so Homer Bailey's like, hey, I can join and I'll be your fifth starter right now. You know what you're getting. You don't have to worry about um, spring battles. You, you know you've got me. Um, I'm not a very good pitcher, but you know you've got me. Um, and so I don't know. I, I probably would put it almost even odds, right? I think what's working against him is that there are still so many unsigned free agents out there. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, I think a team would probably gamble on uh, someone else that's still out there rather than – because he's, yeah. he's been bad for, the, yeah. for a long time now. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I don't know. I mean, like it's possible, like he just gets shelled, you know, Arizona, and the Royals are like, "Eh, we'll pass. We just yeah. brought you in in case, you know, we had a lot of injuries, and we're good. We're good." So, I don't know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd, I'd probably put it slightly more likely that he's not in the organization on April first. But, um, you know, they signed him for a reason. They saw something, and he, yeah. like you said, he doesn't cost anything really. So, we'll see. Um, the other big positional battle, I think, in spring training is in right field, and I wrote a little bit about that this week. Um, I think it's really a three-man race. You're going to see Chris Owings in there on occasion, but it's really a three-man race on who will start on opening day. Jorge Bonifacio, who 
uh, was a starter for much of 2017, but was hit with a PED suspension last year and wasn't really the same. You have Brian Goodwin, who came over from the Nats last year, but was hurt a lot when after he was traded. Has put up some decent numbers, though, in the major league level. And then you have Brett Phillips, who has probably the biggest upside, but has really struggled with the bat uh, at the major league level, uh, although he is a tremendous defender. So kind of looking at those three options, um, who is kind of your pick to start on opening day? Like, you don't think you, you don't think they're going to give up on Bonifacio. Um, they seem to really like him. You know, um, Phillips they just traded for, you know, essentially, and, like, they love his speed and kind of the kind of joy that he plays the game with. Um, Brian Goodwin's, yeah, you know, oh, man, I don't know. And then you got Solaire. Uh, you you go first. I'm curious on who you think. Well, so I think that, you know, Dayton Moore being a big inventory guy and knowing that Phillips and yeah, have Bonifacio options. have options uh, probably means they're both going to the minors. Phil, uh, Goodwin starts in, in right. Solaire is a starts at DH. And then Terrence Gore and Chris Owings are essentially your two out reserve outfielders. Um, that being said, Bonifacio is right-handed, and most of the other outfielders are left-handed. I guess Owings isn't, um, so that helps. Um, yeah, I think that's probably how they'll go. Goodwin, Goodwin seems like a stopgap guy who's like, yeah, totally. You know, you start him now until Phillips is ready or Bonifacio is ready, and moves him off that position. Then he can be a nice reserve player. Um, but his, you know, it's kind of like the clock is ticking on him. Whereas Phillips and Bonifacio, I think, can definitely marinate for another couple months in the minors uh, and use that option year. Um, but I don't know. And yeah, you know. if you could combine Bonifacio the hitter with Phillips the defender, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, then you'd have something. But unfortunately, it's they're com- two completely different players. Yeah, and I'm a little biased too. I really like Goodwin because I loved, I really liked him as a draft draft prospect. Yeah, I know. That's North what I think. Carolina. Um, he seemed like a five tool guy. And I, I, I don't know what happened to the minors. I think he's had some injury problems, but I think he's also just had some development issues. I feel like he's the kind of guy that if he played every day, you know, maybe if things went right, he could actually show that he's a not a great player, but a solid player. But on the other hand, he's 28 years old, and it's like, what you know, what's his future with the Royals? Really, probably not much of one. Even even though he's got a couple of years left of, of club control, you know, he's going to be 30 years old before you know it. It's like, well, let's you know, maybe we should just go see what what Phillips can do, you know, cause Phillips isn't really, he isn't exactly young. He's yeah. 25. And so part of me, if says, you know, just throw him out there and see what he can do. And, and, and he's got to, he's got to figure out major league pitching uh, one way or the other. And the only, the best way to do that is actually face it. So, so I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, at least the Royals have, I would say they have options, but at least there's, there's plenty of guys out there who'd be like, Hey, let's throw this guy. Oh, he doesn't work. Okay. Let's try this guy. You know, you thankfully they're at that point in the, you know the the timeline or the development path of the the franchise um that they have they're not trying to compete or you know they're not going to compete um and so they have plenty of opportunity the playing time is the one commodity they've got um that they could just throw anybody they want you know and give it a shot and they've got enough depth that we don't have to see abraham omonti or some guy like that go out there and get 150 plate appearances like they did last year so it's it's a much better situation i think than last year and and, uh yeah i think it'll be interesting to see i want to see i'll get a good look at all three of them really um so so hopefully we get a chance to do that this summer and they can all stay healthy and we can see what they can do um i mentioned chris owings a little bit uh it was kind of interesting rustin dot had an article about owings and how ned yost plans to use him it sounds like he's going to be a super utility player where he's going to be in the lineup almost every day and he's a guy that 
um, has been a reserve player, was a, kind of a high, highly thought of prospect as a, in the minors, and it didn't really pan out. He kind of it was more of a reserve role with the Diamondbacks, and he, he's coming off a very poor season. But he's put up some decent numbers in the past. Pretty good power, pretty good speed, pretty good defender in the outfield. Um, but is this going to be a situation? I compared him to Willie Bloomquist. You know, we all remember Willie just playing pretty much every day, way too much, you know, getting outfield time, even though he couldn't hit. Are, are we at a risk of that kind of situation, or is it maybe different because Owings is a lot younger than, than Bloomquist, Bloomquist was? Yeah, yeah, that might be. Well, let me – I want to pull up. Now, I'm look, now I want to look at Bloomquist's numbers again because, yeah, my man could not hit, could he? Um, I thought maybe I was underrating him. I was thinking like, man, he might not be as bad as I remember, but well, yeah. He's, I, he's, when I looked up his offensive stats and I was like, well, that was before we had like defensive metrics. So let me look at his defensive. And then he was <laughs> like a negative 1.3 yeah. re- uh, wins below replacement. I'm like, oh yeah, he was really bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they negative. gave him 109 starts in, I think it was 2009. Uh, and just played him like all the time. And I get that it wasn't a great team. And it's like, yeah. not like he was blocking like super talented players, but Man, it's a lot of at bats. Not very good player. He played some first, first, second, third, short. He played everywhere. Yep, left, center, and right. Yep, everything catcher. Um, man, I don't even remember him playing shortstop. Negative four DRS at shortstop. Okay, in two in two hundred thirty-seven innings, which is. Oh my God! What is that? Two thirty-seven divided by nine, which is twenty-six games. That's that's an accomplishment. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I get what you're saying. This seems like it's somewhat similar to that. Now, as you mentioned, yeah, Owens Owens is at least a little more attractive because yeah, he's not uh, thirty-one like when Bloomquist joined the Royals. Um, but it's kind of a similar to that. It's like okay, we know that he can kind of play everywhere. Um, he probably isn't going to be, you know, a, a terrible defender everywhere. Um, but it's like, at some point, wouldn't you optimally, optimally like to swap means for Nicky Lopez? Now, Lopez doesn't really play the outfield, but in the sense of like the getting every day um, at bats and the like, Lopez seems like the better choice for this, right? Yeah, I would think so uh i understand if maybe you don't want to do that to begin the year and yeah you yeah. want to give lopez like two or three months in omaha to prove himself yeah. but yeah but it seemed like you could probably start lopez at second a couple times a week and have whit merrifield be the one to move around because like they're talking about doing that with owings where owings would play second and merrifield would move to the outfield which i'm like owings is a better defensive outfielder than infielder and merrifield yeah. is a pretty good defender at second so that that doesn't really <laughs> make that much sense but uh yeah I don't know why you wouldn't. I mean, I guess you could just move. Uh, Merrifield plays some right field, right? Yeah, he, wasn't he just plays all, left. all three outfield positions. I think. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I just can picture him in left. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you could really do. I mean, you put Lopez at second, Montesi at shortstop, whoever you want at third. Um, and then Lo- or Merrifield in right. You don't have to worry about Goodwin. You don't have to worry about Bonifacio. I mean, really, who would you rather get the priority to? Would you rather it – Lopez at second base, or Bonifacio, Goodwin, um, Hamilton, or some combination of that, or Phillip, some combination of that, and Wright. Um, you know, I think most people would be willing to just say, "Well, sorry, Jorge Bonifacio, sorry, uh, Brian Goodwin. We're going to go with Lopez um, and give him the playing time, and then move, you know, Merrifield to right, not full time, but you know, part of that rotation to where you don't." You know, ultimately, you're choosing between Lopez or Bonifacio slash um, 
good one. Yeah, well, I, I didn't want to panic too much about it just because it's six weeks before spring training, yeah. and, and ultimately, you know, this season probably doesn't matter that much. You know, what, what matters to me is development. Uh, but it did it did kind of, like, raise my Ned Yost antenna when I read yeah. that from Eston Dodd. Like, oh, Ned, there you go yeah. again. But um, they did... They did find playing time for Ramon Torres last year, a little, very little bit. But in 2017, Torres got himself uh, 33 games, and I think it was later in the season. But still, I mean, like Lopez is at least as good as Ramon Torres, and if Ramon Ramon Torres got a little bit of playing time, you would think you could squeeze in Lopez over someone like Owings? So I don't know. Yeah, I'll be really interested in seeing how they handle Lopez, just because, like I said earlier, I'm kind of wary that he might spend the whole year in Omaha, which. Yeah, maybe that's for the best. I mean, there's certainly, like, you know, Dave Morris said he'd rather bring a guy up too late than too early. So, you know, we'll see. Um, we still have players that are unsigned. Bryce Harper <clears throat> sounds like he's kind of getting, getting close to this uh, decision. We know, you know, there have been reports that the Phillies have offered him three hundred million dollars. Doesn't sound like he's that excited about going to Philadelphia. Uh, so, so he may be weighing other offers from the Dodgers that might be more short term. Um, I don't know. Do you have a sense on where where Bryce Harper ends up? And and no, you know what? I I I know for a fact that John Heyman gets a percentage of Harper's contract. <laughs> yeah. He has He's to. He's out there hustling, man. He has to. That's <laughs> the only way that is possible. That I saw a tweet that was like, um, God, whatever it was, like Heyman basically reported the same thing like eight times yeah. <laughs> in a week. It's like, dude. Oh, my gosh. So we'll see because, you know what, right now it kind of sounds like it's just the Phillies. Well, it was just the Phillies for a while, and then, seriously, the Dodgers and the Giants are back in it, um, despite the Dodgers saying they're going to stay under the luxury tax, and the and the Giants been burned by every single large contract they've ever given, essentially. Um, even the modest contract of uh, Madison Bumgarner is now kind of like hurting them a bit. I mean, not that he's making a ton, but still. Um, so I don't know, but it seems like the Phillies are going to be, are the place, but man, it also really seems like Bryce Harper does not want to sign with the Phillies. Cause I mean, I guess if you're going to get $300 million, it's kind of tough to complain who's going to give it to you. But I mean, it sounds like he's holding out for anybody to come along and beat that deal. Well, it's funny because there was reports a couple of weeks ago that, that was like, you know, Bryce Harper will not sign a short term deal. Yeah. And now that the Phillies are the only like big deal out there, you know, you get these reports of like, oh, Bryce Harper might consider a short-term deal with the Dodgers. Like, oh, how his position has changed. So, yeah, there's a lot of negotiating through the press going on. And uh, I don't know, is, if the Phillies sign Bryce Harper, does that make them, I guess, a serious contender for the, the pennant? I, I know it's a pretty good division because yeah. the Nationals are still pretty good and the Braves are definitely a team on the way up. Um, but... And, you know, you got well, the Dodgers, and the, like, you know maybe the Padres are, are on the rise, but uh, uh, I don't know. This, it doesn't strike me as Harper's like the missing piece between them and a, a pennant. Yeah, I was just was talking to someone about someone at work about um, World Series odds, which I know are a far cry from are they going to be good. But I think the Phillies were better odds than I was. I think it's like they were like plus two hundred or something, better odds than I thought they'd be, and like. No, I don't dis. Obviously, I don't dislike the Phillies. Um, they've got you know several good players. They you know they just got Real Muto. Hoskins is pretty dang good. Uh, Segura is fine. You know, I mean, they've got guys. Um, but I mean, pitching wise, it's basically just Aaron Nola and an injured Jake Arrieta. Um, you know, they're 
relief cores, David Robertson and Sir Anthony, Sir Anthony Dominguez. I mean, like it's they're good, but yeah, you're right. I'm not sure that Harper all of a sudden makes them like, oh, hey, they're the strong candidate for the NL East when you've got the kind of um, surging Braves, and then somehow a team with you know Trey Turner. Anthony Rendon, Juan Soto, Adam Eaton, Victor Robles, Max Scherzer, uh, Patrick Corbin, Steven Strasburg are, is somehow getting underlooked because I feel like people are counting out the Nationals. And mm-hmm. yeah, I know they've never won a playoff series, but it's like this team is still really freaking good. They might lose Bryce Harper. Oh, they just they're just going to swap them with uh, either – you know, 19-year-old Juan Soto, who was incredible last year, or like the top 10 prospect in baseball, Victor Robles. So it's it's not like all of a sudden, nope, he was the key to him because they might be the exact same team without him. And watch them finish first place next year and, and actually advance around in the playoffs, and the narrative will be, oh, they just oh, had to get yeah. rid of Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper <laughs> was dragging them down, him and his bad yeah. attitude. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We'll have to see how that saga plays out. Um, but it's you know, Harper it's, in the um, oh, sorry Harper in the postseason. Um, yeah, two forty two WRC plus one twenty five WRC plus. But then last year he had a seven. Oh yeah, he was awful in the postseason last year. That's right, or twenty seventeen. He was really bad. That's right. So, anyways, but he's had good postseasons. Yeah. So definitely someone you know, Victor Robles could do what he does in the in the postseason. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, one of the uh, you know it's been a slow off season and. Uh, there's been a lot of suggestions on how to fix that. And you came out with an article of your own about possibly doing a reverse luxury tax to kind of get some of these teams to spend a little bit more. Do you want to explain the concept behind your article a little bit? Yeah, I think it's a little novel, um, an idea. It's kind of more, uh, I don't know about campy, but it's, it's, it's just something like, Hey, what about this? Um, so, I mean, when you think about it, so a lot of the problems that I think people are coming up with are that teams just aren't spending, which while I'm not sure that that's necessarily true, um, some of the thing is also as well like, hey, you know, big complaints are teams aren't spending, teams are purposely trying to tank. So kind of a proxy way to fix that would be, you know, we know or at least that there's been strong evidence of that winning and payroll uh, go hand in hand. I mean, not one to one, you know, correlation, but a pretty strong one. Um, teams that typically spend a lot of money typically end up being good teams. Um, and of course, there's teams like the Rays in Oakland who have low payrolls, but they just don't have the ability to spend like the Yankees. Um, so if you think that you know wins move linearly with pay, that if you have a system in place where teams are forced to spend money. You would not only kind of help solve the free agencies, the free agents are get paid scenario because, you know, they would be quiet, required to spend money. Um, you're also somewhat helping the tanking idea uh, because teams would be required to spend and spending has been shown to be, you know, linear with um, wins. And so you would, you know, essentially raise the floor of tanking of the you know the lowest team win total and then you would also help raise the floor of um mlb salaries as far as uh, money going around and so i thought the idea was kind of novel i thought it was kind of fun to think about um i'm not sure it's perfect because it's not that much different from the you know the nba's um minimum 
uh, payroll or, or whatever the heck they call it, the, the salary floor. Um, it's a little different in the fact that the NBA, where you could just give, if you were like $3 million under, you could just spread that out to your players. Um, I think that they could just keep the luxury tax idea, the loss of draft picks, the loss of bonus pool, uh, plus a tax on the overage, and kind of make that also on the under. So rather than just being able to make up the spending with your own team, you have you then have real consequences beyond just money. Because if anything, teams have shown that they really don't care about money that much when it comes to penalties. I mean, the Dodgers had no problem writing whatever it was, a $10 million check to go win the World Series um, after getting, you know, burst by the luxury tax. So that was just kind of the idea is that you could build in some sort of a floor where you would, you know, help a bit with tanking and help a bit with um, spending. Yeah, it's it's an interesting idea. And I think you, you talk about the NBA and I think what your system might create is similar to what the NBA, NBA has in that um, bad yeah. contracts become like movable yeah. uh, assets or the ability to take on bad contracts becomes yeah, yeah. an asset that you can actually market out in the marketplace. So, you know, the Royals, maybe they're 10 million under the, the luxury tax floor. And uh, the Red Sox have a bad contract, or the Yankees, let's say, with Jacoby Ellsbury. Let's pretend that he has a, he can actually be traded without a no trade clause. Um, the, you know, the Yankees could say, hey, we're, we want to get under the cap so we can sign a player. Royals, you know, you need to get over the cap. So maybe we'll, we'll trade you Ellsbury um, for and we'll throw in a, a decent prospect to make it worth your while, and you give us a token player back in return or whatever, uh, and then you can immediately release Ellsbury if you want, but that'll get you, you know, you're obligated to pay his contract yep. and you're, you're fulfilling your obligations while we get under our cap. And So I think that could actually, and you've seen a little bit of that already. I remember the, was it the uh, Tuki Toussaint deal with the Braves where they took on the um, Bronson Arroyo contract? Yeah. from the Diamondbacks and took a prospect in return for a, a reserve infielder named Phil Goslin and uh, but they got a prospect you know to to make it worth their while. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that it could actually end up helping a lot of these small market teams forcing them to spend and maybe they're not spending on free agents but maybe they're actually getting more prospects out of it. Um, so I think that's that's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, and I think I think you'd see and I don't know very much about the NBA and like salaries, but I think you would see also, um, it feels like, okay, like I'm looking at the top NBA contracts, like total value, literally never heard of who Clint Capella is. Um, but he's making 87 million. He's making more than, um, some of these guys, you know, I've literally never heard of Rudy Gobert or, um, oh gosh, some of these guys, Nicholas Batum, but I mean, these guys were making tens and tens of millions of dollars. So like you'd have a little bit of that where like, um, I, I feel like I've heard of like, Oh, we had to spend a minimum amount of money. So we just gave, you know, Joe Schmo a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe Clint Capella's a star. Um, he's but, good. He's not, I, yeah, he's probably overpaid, but he's, he's pretty smart, but Bat- Batum, yeah. that's a Batum. That's a bad deal. Okay. Cause he's making, I mean, Capella's making the he is the 15th highest contract in NBA, and I don't know if he's the 15th best player in NBA, <laughs> but um, he's getting paid more what looks like than some guys that yeah. seem like they're better than he is just from name value. So, but that's what I get at is that you you would have that sort of um, you would raise kind of the the possibility of that where it's like oh we just had to give this money out because it, we had to spend it, and so we just gave up you know. Maybe an average guy a big deal just because we had the money. You no, know, we I, had th- I think you're exactly right. That's how it's kind of worked in the NBA. Is like the middle class kind of gets, I don't know, overpaid probably a little bit. 
uh, and, and definitely with baseball, we're seeing uh, the middle class is is getting um, really deflated. Um, you got have guys like Mike Mustakas getting paid just nine million dollars for a one year deal because um, the difference between his production and like a replacement level guy you could just find that maybe has some upside isn't so great that it's worth paying you know forty million over four years for. So yeah, I think that would take care of a lot of that issue. Of course, the owners aren't going to just willingly spend money on players like that. I mean, you see a lot of resistance with small, especially smaller market teams. I mean, is there any? Do you have any uh, ways of getting the, the owners to agree to this? Um, I mean, no. I mean, the resolu- I mean, really, the Rays or the Oakland or anybody at the bottom of kind of the market size just be like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Give us more money. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. they would just require a larger pot piece of the um, the the competitive balance um, pool. Uh, so yeah, I mean that that would be it. But they'd just be like, give us more money, give us more revenue sharing, and sure we'll do that. Um, but you know what? That's also kind of like the uh, little bit of like a foul because I mean Oakland for years received revenue sharing, and then in the latest CBA, every all the other owners like you guys are you guys are in Oakland. Um, no, you are not a small market team, and so now they're getting phased out of the revenue sharing. So part of that is like yeah. These teams kind of cry broke, but like the Royals, for instance, I think are probably making at least 120 million before they even sell a ticket, just through revenue sharing, through um, through the TV deal. Uh, you know, they're doing okay. That yeah, I mean, they have the money, but it's also tough to be like, okay, you have to spend this money now because in the end, I mean, it is a business, um, and you know, the owners are going to be like, well, I want a winning product, but you know putting burdens on teams, have telling the Rays, hey, you need to spend at least $150 million, you know, which should probably be double whatever their highest payroll has ever been. That does put a bit of a financial burden on them um, in the end if, you know, the deals go wrong. Yeah, and it'll ultimately have to be something where the owners and the players have to also negotiate something where, you know, the owners maybe give that up, but the players give up, you know, you know, there's a hard cap maybe and it's lower than it is now or – Maybe some some change in free agency, but um, that'll have to be negotiated in the next labor deal. Which man, it doesn't sound like things are on the uh, most yeah. contentious path right now. It sounds like there might be a, a you know an ominous drumbeat of possibly a work stoppage in a couple of years. So uh, hopefully they can avoid that. Maybe they can come to their senses and do something like a reverse luxury tax or some of the other ideas that have been thrown out there, and we can avoid uh, any kind of work stoppage because that was just. Uh, that was a, that 1994. That was a terrible year for baseball. <laughs> yeah, I was five years old, so I'm glad that I wasn't. Yeah, doing, missed you know, out. <laughs> I was. Yeah. Thanks I'm for reminding me how old I am. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, I wanted to close out real quick. Uh, just it was an article in the Star this week, and from the editorial board, uh, and this seems to come up like every couple of years. Uh, I think when people just don't have things to talk about anymore, they they're pushing the idea of a downtown baseball stadium again for the Royals, arguing that you know the the stadiums by 2032 when the renovations are paid off it's going to be you know the stadiums will be a stadium will be 60 years old um and rather than renovate it again maybe we we should move it downtown because downtown is thriving right now they suggest a few sites there's one by the um river market uh one kind of by sprint center one by the government district uh on the east side they also suggested uh 18th and vine as, as a possibility um so like 10 15 years ago um when this was coming up, I was very much for downtown baseball. Um, 
it was the, the the Kauffman Stadium was kind of falling into disrepair, and you know the location wasn't great. Downtown was terrible at the time. It was basically like a wig shop and yeah. a couple of hobos. Uh, and so I thought, you know, Denver had already you know moved Coors Field downtown, and downtown stadiums had worked in a couple other cities. So I was, you know, at the time I was like, well, this would be a great idea for Kansas City. I love urban areas. Uh, move the move the K downtown, put it in a better location, kickstart our downtown, and and solve a lot of problems. But since then, I mean, we did build an arena, and downtown has kind of, you know, looks much different than it did 15 years ago. It's not really in a situation where you need it to be rejuvenated. There are still some areas that are definitely underdeveloped that perhaps something like a baseball stadium could help. Uh, but then we've also just we renovated the stadiums in I think 2006, yeah, uh, to the tune of like 300 million dollars, um, and so now Kauffman Stadium looks pretty good. Now, 13 years from now, maybe it won't. But I guess what was kind of your impression of the editorial or, or just the, the talk of moving the Royals downtown in in a decade? Yeah, like um, I think so. As much as I I, I love Kauffman as a lifelong Kansas Kansas Cityan. It sucks to get out there. Um, it's just like so inconvenient. And yeah, it's easy to get out there as far as getting in and getting out because you don't have to worry about like downtown traffic. But like from me, for, I mean, from where I grew up, it was a 30 minute drive. And I live kind of north of the river in Kansas City. Um, so, I mean, I lived in Kansas City proper and it still took me 30 minutes to get there. Um, where I live now probably takes me eh, 25 or so. So it just it's it's not convenient to get there. And there's zero, and for anybody who might not have been a cop and listened to this podcast, there's zero to do out there by the stadium. You basically go to the game, you tailgate, you go in. Um, there's no going out with friends beforehand or, you know, going with your work buddies, getting dinner, and then going to the game um, and nightlife after. It, it's, it's strictly just go to the game and then leave the game um, unless you want to go to the Denny's. Is it a Denny's that's across this? The oh, yeah. Park? You get all the Denny's. moons over Miami uh, you want. Oh, yeah. Remove yeah, yeah, over my slammy. Is that what's called? <laughs> over George Brett Highway there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, or George Brett Parkway, whatever it is. Uh, so, I like that idea. Um, I am, as I, a lot of my, like, writing and thoughts come off very pro-business, but I am very anti-people, uh, taxpayers paying for stadiums. I think that corporations, which the Royals are a corporation, should pay for their own uh, stadium. Now, I can live with it a little bit if, like, the Royals are like, okay, it's going to cost a billion, we'll pay $900 million, um, and then you guys levy a $100 million total tax over 30 years, which ends up being just pennies, um, as long as it doesn't go towards, like, the poor folks in Jackson County who have to pay for the stadium and then might not even get to go to the games because, you know, part of Jackson County is um, – lower socioeconomic area. So, like, you know, it's kind of always been like, oh, hey, Jackson County, you know, taxpayers, you pay for this, and then the Johnson County taxpayers in Kansas are going to benefit from it because they're going to go to the games without having to worry about paying for it. Um, am I wrong on that? That's the way that it was structured, right? Yeah, the the um, for the stadiums. At least Jackson County. Yeah, yeah. Jackson County paid for it. Yeah, and then, Jackson County paid for it, yes. I think there's right. some funding from the state of Missouri, which – uh, is probably less likely this time around because the state doesn't is kind of t- also take taking an anti um, you know money for stadiums uh, stance you know they didn't pay for a football stadium in St Louis uh, when the Rams wanted and the Rams left uh, so I think the state's less willing to do that but yeah definitely the city yeah or the county would be on the hook. yeah yeah 
Yeah, and so it was on the burden of kind of Jackson County to pay for what you know what other counties in the area got um, a benefit of. I do like the idea, and I think that you mentioned this. Um, I like the idea of like it being co-shared, maybe like, and I know the idea has been bandied around about it being on um, down in the West Bottoms, um, but having it somewhere maybe closer to the state line, so where you could at least you know have hey Johnson County, you pay for some of it, Jackson will pay for some of it, and again I don't. I, I don't want taxpayers to pay for it at all, but I could live with like a, you know, we'll pay for 900 million, the Royals and then the taxpayers are like, okay, we'll pay for a hundred million. You know, yeah. I, I can live with a semi split, but I definitely don't like the hundred percent, you know, taxpayers. Yeah. I, it's a private business. Yeah. I, I, I definitely agree with you on, on the stance of, you know, you don't want taxpayers paying for what is ultimately a private uh, infrastructure that's going to benefit the Royals to the tune of millions of dollars a year. Um, I think the only argument for doing that would be to give you know, some area economic development that it would not get otherwise. So, um, I, you know, I, I'm not like totally anti tax incentives for businesses, but it's got to, there's got to be a really compelling reason. Like there's a, some plot out in Leawood that, that wants a tax incentive and you know, like Leawood is a pretty nice area. You don't, yeah. you shouldn't, the, the free market should be supporting businesses there and you don't need subsidies. But in the case of like a really, you know, economically devastated area um, that the, the, the market's just not going to go into, that makes some sense. So, yeah, yeah. If, they, if they were to do in the West Bottoms, maybe I could maybe get behind that. There's probably some other areas. I think um, I saw on Twitter somebody mentioned the Harlem area, which is just north of the river market uh, yep. across the bridge where there really isn't much of anything right there right now. Uh, that might be something you want to revitalize and use the river. I can understand that. Uh, I'm, you know, less comfortable putting it, you know, where downtown is right now, just because, you know, the market is going crazy there. Like there's all sorts of cranes there right now. Obviously, there doesn't need to be more um, yeah. development uh, that needs to be subsidized by uh, taxpayers. So um, as far as like the ease of getting there, I- I'm kind of with you. It's not it's it's not that hard for me to get there now just because I'm pretty close to the center of the city and um, everywhere. I kinda- think. And Not you and I far. live close together. Yeah, I think you, like everywhere is like 15, 20 minutes, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- it feels like it's further from there, anyways. Yeah, but so my thing is though, is it's like so much of like people's opinions on whether or not we should do things in Kansas City depends on how long does it take for me to drive there and where can I park. And I yeah. absolutely hate that because there are so many other considerations we should have, and like <laughs> it's just such a car centric um, yeah. philosophy to like base things on where can I park uh, and I think people oversell how easy it is to get in Kauffman Stadium yeah. because it's, I I remember going to one of the World Series games and it took me a good hour to an hour and a half to get out of there ask any oh, yeah. Chiefs fan how, how easy it is to get out of there now yeah. you know I know so, that those are like 40,000 people but you know if I, I think downtown first of all there are 40,000 parking spots downtown if they built a stadium, it would co- almost certainly come with a huge parking garage. Um, people, 20,000 people live downtown, so they can just walk yeah. home after the game. Nobody they, lives by this. Effectively, nobody lives by the stadium. Right, yes, exactly. No one, no one uh, and even if they did, I mean, it's a long walk yeah. to get from the stadium to their house. Um, yeah. There's a streetcar to take if you want to park at, like, Union Station and, and take a streetcar up to a downtown stadium. And hopefully they can expand that, too. Yeah. Um, or there may be people that don't don't immediately go home after the game. They could just linger and stay at the Power and Light District or whatever bar district there is down there and uh, and hang out. Um, so 
I feel like that's just I I don't want to see the Royals move necessarily, but man, that's like the most frustrating argument to me is like, oh, but I love getting in and out of the stadium yeah. so easy, and I can park, and it's 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 nice and safe, and uh, yeah, I don't and I've and I've been to a lot of downtown stadiums around the country, and you know the parking is not hard to find. Yeah. It's usually about the same price as it is at Kauffman Stadium or less, uh, depending on how far you want to walk. And the, and the walk's usually about the same. I mean, it's it's you know it seemed doesn't seem like a long walk at Kauffman because you can see the stadium and there's no you know it's just a big parking lot. But it's not any different than walking like six blocks you yeah. know, in a downtown yeah. area. So yeah, I, and we don't have we don't have the mass transit of like the Cub like Chicago. But like yeah. I, when I went to Wrigley, very very easy to get to Wrigley. Yeah. Um, obviously there's the, the, the train, which helps, but not every person in the city took the train. Um, and so you could get there Bush stadium. I feel like it's really convenient and it's downtown. I mean, so I'm with you. I, I think that that is a, and also I wonder if there's a social benefit of like, I mean, we, we can basically admit that nobody really lives by the stadium. Now, if you move it downtown, more younger people live downtown mm-hmm. probably. You know, then they live out in independence for the most part that are going to, you know, go to the game. So I think you get a little bit of a social benefit of maybe you help carry it like a not a new generation, but maybe you help bring younger people to the stadium. Um, and it's not just for, oh, hey, my work won free. I won free tickets at work. Let's go to the Royals game. You yeah. could actually get younger people who my brother, my younger brother is 24. He lives downtown. I mean, he. I'm sure he would go to games if he could just walk to the games, which is impossible now, but it's possible if they move downtown. So, yeah, I, I like the idea, um, and, and I think it's a bit of a scapegoat, like you're saying, like yeah. just to worry about parking. Who cares? Just you'll get there either way. Yeah, that's an aspect I hadn't considered, actually. It could benefit the Royals by getting a younger crowd in there. Um, I just uh, one, one last thing I want to touch on is that, that you know, that, I guess the other thing that gives me pause about moving it downtown is that you know, baseball stadiums, they're, the economic growth um, benefits that are touted, I mean, they get so massively overstated. Yep, definitely. And they're, they're nice infrastructures. Yeah, 80 days a year they bring in, you know, 20, 30,000 people on those nights. It's also empty 280 days of the year. So, yeah. I mean, that's like three-fourths of the year. It's just sitting there. And, you know, if you're talking about somewhere where there's already a lot of, um, you know, uh, mass, you know, mass buildup and urban, or, or, or critical urban mass. Um, you know, that's that's you're taking up a lot of real estate yep. that's just not being used, and that that can be really detrimental. I think to some neighborhoods. So, like the city, they're talking about doing the city market or the river market, which I think would be terrible because that's kind of a nice little organic neighborhood that's grown yeah. up, and you just plop a stadium down there. First of all, it's going to drive everyone nuts on game day uh, that lives there, but also you know it's it's just going to kind of kill the the vibe that that's starting to grow there. So. Yeah, you know, if you I think, think you have to be really it. careful where they put it. Uh, you mentioned, you know, out being just sitting idle for 280 days, 280 days a year. I mean, you couldn't if it, if it remains an outdoor stadium, you basically are not going to have any concerts or anything like that. And even if you did want to have concerts in that area, you've got Sprint Center already, mm-hmm. um, which has no annual um, requirement to house anything. It has no sports team attached to it. So it's not like you're going to be hosting events there. Now, maybe you may get a closed roof that could help, but I, you know, I, th- I think you're spot on with that where it's, you know, it's just going to sit idle and it's just going to basically be a parking, parking lot yeah. for a while. Um, you know, and so maybe you could charge 
parking, you know, for people who go, if it's close to power and light or something, you could, you could charge for parking and, you know, open up a lot for that use or for a sprint center. But yeah, I mean, it's just going to sit there idle um, for most of the year. Um, and back to this article though. So 2005, it, you know, it was proposed $357 million. Would you have, uh, would you have rather have done that? Say you found the good spot, say it all kind of made sense. You would rather have spent the $357 million on a new downtown city and then three, whatever it was, $300 million renovating Kaufman, right? Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, like I said, 15 years ago, I, I was very adamant about moving the, the Royals downtown. I thought at the time it made a lot of sense where downtown was and um, and where the Royals were and, and where the stadium was. Um, it just made more, much more sense to get some new – that not only was new but also a benefit to the area. And I, like I said, I think economic – development studies like that get overstated but yeah. that doesn't mean they don't have zero effect and they can't have some effect on like spurring other growth in an area yeah. so well and one thing that i've seen as well as like another kind of cop-out scapegoat is that um well what about what about arrowhead stadium like truman sports complex is this beautiful development like mm -hmm. you can't separate kaufman and arrowhead they have to stay together it's like well I mean, I, I I don't know. I I don't like that excuse at all. But it's one that I've heard a couple people say as well. Well, and and I think by that time the Chiefs may need either a facelift on Arrowhead yep. or a new stadium as well. And football stadiums should definitely not be like in a really urban area because they're only, you only have, <laughs> they're only occupied ten days a year. Yeah, uh, and they require a lot more parking because you have a lot more fans. Yeah, something like the West Bottoms, I guess, could work. I once saw. A, a mock-up where someone put Arrowhead Stadium with one end zone in Kansas and one end zone in Missouri oh, straddling yeah. the state line. I think I saw that. Which, which would be really yeah. interesting. Like, hey, he's, he's at the 50, he's at the 40, he's at the 50, he's in <laughs> Kansas. Like, yeah. That'd be kind of interesting. But I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, the, there, there's so little appetite for bi-state cooperation, it yeah. seems like. It's weird to think that, that, I mean, Kaufman and Arrowhead, Kaufman's one of the older stadiums, mm -hmm. and I'm I'm guessing Arrowhead is also one of the older. I mean, like, I, I wonder how many. Uh, I, I wonder how many stadium or how many cities have two very old stadiums. Yeah. Um, well, Chicago, like, Chicago does. Wrigley and Soldier are both fairly old. It's Soldier that old? Okay. For yeah. some reason, I thought Soldier was a little newer than I'm yeah. thinking it is. Well, it's, it okay. was refurbished, but it's still a very old stadium. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, like Fenway and then uh, Gillette Stadium is fairly new, right? Yeah, that's I think very it, new. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, I was just thinking of all those. I mean, New Yankee have been around. Anyways, I was just thinking like, man, the Royals, not only have the Royals not got an upgrade, but the Chiefs also haven't really got, not, they've gotten upgrades, but they haven't got a new stadium for either. We're both living with these kind of antiquated things. I think this gets pushed by a few people that, that really want downtown baseball that, um, I know the city manager, Troy Schulte, he does a really good job. Um, but he, I know he's a big supporter of downtown baseball is kind of the driving force behind this. I'm sure some property owners, downtown um are, are pushing this as well yeah so we'll see about the royals we'll see if uh you know they'll, they'll make some more memories or, or if uh those memories will be downtown uh in the future but uh i don't know i guess we can wrap things up for now uh is there anything you want to talk about that you're working on no um i'm gonna do a little bit of draft stuff coming up uh i kind of have some thoughts um that's really kind of it just taking it as it comes and i think we're i know we say it every time but i think we're getting closer to opening day so uh it'll be good and um, you know the first game thread the first true meaningful game thread is coming up not too far out but hey I want to thank uh, our guest Adam McIntyre for, for joining us and also thank Sean for, for joining yes. us as well and uh, why don't you send us out yeah have many good days Bye.